men began driving truckloads of stolen wood right through the town in broad daylight. Five townspeople were killed when they tried stopping the criminal. The Tarahumara, or the Raramuri, are an indigenous people of the Americas living in the northern state of Chihuahua. They live in the Sierra Tarahumara within the Sierra Madre, an expansive mountain range covered in pine forests. These are their ancestral lands. The highland ranges are cool and temperate forests with several species of oak, conifer and a number of pines, and logging is permitted here. But excessive legal and illegal logging is contributing to rapid deforestation. For the Raramuri, there are few employment opportunities other than poorly paid seasonal agricultural work such as picking apples. The off-season forces the indigenous migrants to head to the cities in search of work. Women are often in cleaning and men in construction. And then there are those men, women and children that don't find work and resort to begging. It's into situations like these that organised criminal groups enter to take advantage of desperate, vulnerable and displaced people to work in illicit activities such as drug cultivation, drug trafficking and illegal logging. With the organised criminal groups establishing their position within the illegal logging trade, with them comes violence, corruption, kidnapping, extortion, displacement and persecution of environmental and human rights defenders. This is Deep Dive, exploring organised crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. I'm Livia Wagner. Today we're going to be discussing your latest paper, Livia, called People and Forests at Risk, Organised Crime, Trafficking in Persons and Deforestation in Chihuahua, Mexico. Over the past couple of years, the GI has conducted research alongside the US Department of State, the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons, to investigate the Mexican forestry sector to identify links between organised crime, trafficking in persons and deforestation. For the GI's latest report, Livia, you have specifically looked at the growing involvement of organised crime in illegal logging and the related issues that stem from that. So to start off, can you give us a brief outline of your research? Sure. This research found that in the state of Chihuahua, the growing involvement of organised crime in illegal logging and related activities has very much increased levels of violence, displacement, and vulnerability to being trafficked, and of course, deforestation. So illegally logged wood from Chihuahua is often laundered and used in the manufacture of consumer goods exported to the US. That means that without effective due diligence, companies and and also consumers, of course, who purchase wood-based products from Mexico may be financing organized crime and by that also contributing to trafficking in persons and deforestation. And what are your findings? In this research activity, we found mainly three things. Firstly, organized crime, human trafficking or modern slavery, and illegal logging. And this is not having an impact only on the local communities in relation to labor and human rights violations or violations of indigenous rights, but also on the environment as a whole and therefore, of course, on the global ecosystem. And illegal logging is something that we have been looking at for this report. And we found out that the value of illegal logging worldwide 
is estimated to be up to 157 billion US dollars per year. And it is also estimated that in Latin America and in Africa and in Southeast Asia, between 50 and 90% of timber is illegally logged. So the Mexican University UNAM, they indicated already in 2018 that at least 70% of Mexican wood was illegally logged. And according to the Federal Prosecutor of Environmental Protection, the PROFEPA in Mexico, they announced that the production of illegally logged wood accounts for 30% of the authorized annual volume of wood produced in Mexico. And there is a trade of up to 15 million cubic meters of illegally logged wood in Mexico each year. So this is a huge number. This is mainly found in the states of Chihuahua, Chiapas, Sonora, Sinaloa. And Chihuahua was one of the states that we have done our field research. So what is the organized crime involvement and how has that changed over the years? So what we have found there is that uh, organized crime groups that are closely linked to illegal logging. And these groups may be directly engaged in illegal logging. And that means by bringing in crews to illegally log protected areas or areas held by ejidos or indigenous communities and also by private landowners. But also these criminal groups that are involved in the extortion of individuals and the communities and companies, formal companies along the illegal wood supply chain. And of course, these criminal groups are closely tied to the laundering of illegally logged wood. And this was drawing our attention that to see the implications then for human rights violations And what we have been looking for in this report, of course, labor rights violations also leading to labor exploitation or labor trafficking. And when we looked at the connection between organized crime and illegal logging, what we have seen that in the past uh, 15 years, illegal logging has increasingly been seen as a profitable activity for organized crime groups. And In general, when you look at countries where there is a high level of crime and violence, of course, workers are at an increased risk of labor exploitation at the same time. So looking now at the specific case of Mexico and Chihuahua, there is a great deal of infighting between these criminal groups for the control of logging and, of course, other illicit sectors. Organized crime groups, they intimidate and attack and kill landowners and community members, but also businessmen and activists who oppose them. So just to give you an example, in October 2018, there were found six headless bodies at a gas station just outside of Krell, and a message was taped to one of the victims, and it included a reference to illegal logging. And then Chihuahua's criminal investigation agency, they reported that infighting between the Juarez cartel and the Sinaloa cartel, of which the victims were the members, over the illegal wood trade was the most likely motive behind the killings. So you mentioned there the Juarez and Sinaloa cartel. Now, these began as drug trafficking organizations, but we know that these organized criminal groups have diversified into different illicit markets. Why have they entered the illegal logging market? So just to to highlight this as an example, the profit earning for these criminal groups is, for instance, in one night, they can earn as much as $2,600 up to $3,700 in one single night. 
through illegal logging and bringing in teams of 10 workers and cutting down as many as 250 pine trees in one night. So here you can see that there is a high level of profit that can be generated by these criminal groups. And it's also very profitable because we're speaking about remote areas where there is no presence of law enforcement, no labor inspection or any other entities. So what role does human trafficking and forced labor actually play in illegal logging? So this is something very interesting that we have been looking at for this report, um, the relationship between human trafficking, forced labor related to illegal logging. And when we speak about forced labor, we also have to look at the ILO um, forced labor definition, which is basically outlining two sets of forced labor indicators. The first one assesses the element of involuntariness. And the second one assesses the existence of penalty or the menace of penalty. And through our field research, which is also highlighted, of course, in the report, we have found a number of indicators of forced labor in Chihuahua's forestry sector. And it is also important to note that all the interviewees mentioned that degree of exploitation was, of course, much more severe and violent in the cases where employers were affiliated with these organized crime groups. And many of these factors, they contribute to labor risk. So that means that the workers may be fearful of leaving their jobs before paying off their debts or completing their contract. And they're also, of course, less likely to file any complaints as authorities are sometimes often perceived to be working in collusion with organized crime groups and other actors. And looking at indicators of voluntariness, involuntariness, we're speaking here about unfree recruitment, slavery or, or bonded labor. And from looking through your research, we've seen that in local communities, you've been told of instances where teenage boys as young as 13 were actually kidnapped or forced to work by the organized crime groups? Yeah, so what we have here is that also what local experts and community and HIDA members have told us is that there were instances, as you were saying, where boys between the ages of 13 and 17 years were kidnapped or forced to work for organized crime groups. So they were forced to engage in activities generally associated with organized crime crimes such as trafficking, sale of drugs, and so on. But of course, these miners, they were also forced to engage in activities related to the forestry sector. That means engaging in illegal logging and working as halcones, that means as lookouts for illegal logging operations, and working as debt collectors and assassins to ensure that the hidos and the small businesses paid their pisos. Pisos is like small contributions. And another indicator is that workers, they have to perform a job that is of a different nature from what was specified or told them during the recruitment phase. This is what we have, especially in the case of teenagers that were recruited as they were promised high earnings and, of course, a very attractive lifestyle and so on. And when they arrived at the work site, they realized that there are low-level pawns with no control over the task or their conditions of work. So once they have started, of course, it was extremely difficult to almost impossible to leave the group due to threats to their lives. You mentioned the conditions there. What are the working conditions like for the workers? So there were reports that adult workers were originally offered a decent and regular salary. But in practice, they were paid lower amounts. And sometimes 
they were withholding their payment for weeks and months. And we also heard about cases where they weren't paid at all. So this shows that there is a strong indicator for that. And another one is also the abusive requirements for overtime. So our field research has shown that there is a high risk of forced overtime in the forestry sector in Chihuahua when being aligned or in collusion with organized crime groups. Very often, these crime groups, they extort, as I was saying, ejidos and commercial forestry plantations and requiring them to make regular piso payments in cash or in wood. This is where now forced overtime comes into play. And this has escalated in around 2014. And extortion and the threat of violence also increased. And of course, also pressures on production, which at the same time increases the risk that employers will force the workers to work overtime to be able to make these payments, either in cash or in wood. Now, talking about the working condition, what we have seen is that the workers were often subject to hazardous working conditions without the necessary personal protective equipment, the PPE. And sometimes they even had to pay themselves for that equipment, which of course then reduced the, the usage rates. And sometimes what we have also heard is that they didn't even use the most rudimentary protective equipment, such as helmets, for instance. Another risk to workers' health includes also forced engagement in the illicit activities and induced addiction to illegal substances. How are the lines between the licit market and the illicit market blurred within the logging industry? In some cases, sawmills, they were forced by criminal organizations to accept and launder illegally logged wood. So that means sawmills workers have been forced by either their employer or by criminal organizations. And sometimes drag drivers, they were also forced to mix illegally logged wood with shipments of legally logged wood. Going back to the illegal substances, what we have heard is that workers engaged in the illegal logging sometimes were giving drugs because it helped them to work long and extremely physical demanding shifts like felling or hauling trees. And how is the threat of violence used as a recruitment tool? The second set of indicators is looking at indicators of penalty or the menace of penalty and speaking about the environment that is managed by organized crime groups. So we have here the situation that the threat of violence was used to recruit minors, especially in remote areas controlled by criminal groups. And in some cases, explicit threats of violence were not even needed because armed individuals who were known associates of some criminal groups would enter a community and demand that the teenagers come with them. So there was likewise an implicit threat against the lives of the teenagers or the families and relatives if they resisted the demands from these criminal groups. In other cases, workers are also directly and openly threatened with so-called tablazos, which is a local term used to refer to threats. So it literally means to be hit by a board, like a, the tabla. What we have also heard is that from the workers or members of ejidos and indigenous communities is that those who not follow the order of these criminal groups would be killed or disappeared. And looking at the restrictions of worker movement in that case, there you have to imagine that we're looking at illegal logging sites that are in isolated mountain areas. There is a lack of cell phone reception, of course, impeding workers to communicate with the families. 
And these remoted areas, there's a low presence of law enforcement. And sometimes these workers, they could not leave for a period of six months, sometimes to up to a year. And they were unable to communicate with family members. And what about organized crime groups creating a risk of induced indebtedness? What local experts have reported is that HEDO commissioners are sometimes tricked or corrupted by sawmills or these organized crime groups into selling wood at a sub-market price. They describe the cases where organized crime groups used threats to force commissioners to sign agreements. And this, of course, combined with the charging of a piso, can then result in induced indebtedness among the ejidos and, and sawmills. And this, of course, can also lead to ejido members in sawmills to put more pressure on their workers to pay the people each month. Thank you, Livia. And you can read Livia's report, People and Forest at Risk, Organized Crime, Trafficking in Persons and Deforestation in Chihuahua, Mexico, by clicking on the link within the summary to the episode or heading over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net. Livia, over to you. Thanks, Jack. Now let's turn to the vulnerable communities in Chihuahua and how they are affected by illegal logging in the area. People living in the region are at risk through displacement, land grabs, kidnapping, forced recruitment, corruption, poverty, general violence, and destruction of ancestral lands. But despite this, communities are able to build resilience in the face of organized crime. Diana Siller is the director of JADE, Environmental Justice and Human Rights in Mexico and is the co-author of People and Forests at Risk, Organized Crime, Trafficking in Persons, and Deforestation in Chihuahua, Mexico. So when talking about communities living in the Sierra, we're basically talking about indigenous population and mestizos. Mestizos are mixed between Spanish and indigenous peoples. We have the mestizos and indigenous people are the main landowners of the forests. So 85% of the forest belongs to these communities. So the indigenous group, because of their living in extreme poverty, many of them lack the resources to actually be able to have their own enterprise. And they are exposed because of being the owners of the land to uh, abusive contracts by the private sector. So this is where it all starts happening. Once they have these contracts that are basically the signed with local mafias or middlemen that distribute the timber produce at a regional natural scale, the forest begins to be overexploited very easily, right? And then at the same time, we have illegal logging invading the lands. So we have the two phenomena. We have that they're being abused by the contracts and that they're being invaded by illegal logging. How long has this been going on for? This has been happening for over 50 years in the Sierra. It's not, it's not new, especially by small local mafias and unorganized crime. But this has gotten worse in the last 15 years because of the presence of organized crime linked to drug trafficking. So drug trafficking organizations that are known in Mexico, in the north of Mexico, are taking control over not only the Sierra for harvesting drugs, but also taking over timber production and getting some additional income out of it while they're there. So the presence of DTOs in the Sierra is adding up to the social vulnerability of indigenous groups and the small forestry enterprises of mestizos. 
and not only in terms of illegal logging practices, but also because of the violence that comes with the dynamics of organized crime. So we're talking about extortion, we're talking about kidnapping, we're talking about land grabs, and well, recruiting the young population of their communities. And this has been going for more than 20 years. And illegal logging, well, basically, is linked to the laundering of wood. So what they do, they're taking over the land, their forests, their timber production, and they're also taking control over the sawmills. The DTOs then have a laundering timber. Also, it also happens that they probably launder money there too. So if the organized criminal groups are moving in, what impact is this having on the indigenous population? So uh, the indigenous population and mestizos, especially the indigenous population, in fear they're being displaced. They're fleeing the Sierra out of fear and deforestation too, actually. But um, when talking about land grabs and fear, when they are displaced, when they flee the Sierra, they are looking for other job opportunities very far away from their native land, and they're easily exposed to other risks, basically of labor exploitation. We already know some cases where indigenous population has been found being exploited in agroindustrial activities, as the apple picking and harvesting in Chihuahua, the tomato business in Sinaloa, and they're also being at risk of human trafficking and labor trafficking. These are situations that we already know that they're happening. So social vulnerability in the Sierra Taromara is increasing with the presence of DTOs. And DTOs are basically, well, increasing illegal logging, increasing and contributing to deforestation, and having a very high impact on indigenous population. For those who don't follow environmental crime and human rights in relation to the indigenous communities, what are the key messages to come out of this report? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that we're all consumers. I mean, we are all consuming wood-made products or timber-related produce somehow, or we're being part of a production chain that allows wood laundering. So as consumers, I would say that we need to ask and demand for information of the source and somehow for people like us that are more active into human rights and environmental justice will demand justice, right? Demand that products are traced and more vigilance in the value chain, in the production chain. As consumers, we sometimes don't even ask ourselves, where does this come from? What is behind what I'm buying? And for some cases, like diamonds in Africa, we already kind of know, right? Like we, we are suspicious of it. But if I buy a piece of furniture, rarely will ask myself, where does the wood come from? And if it's linked to a drug trafficking organization. So I think these are the questions we should be making to ourselves. We should be aware that these links are real and that we are being part without knowing of these impacts. What about local authorities? Are they doing anything to help these communities? We need to demand justice and more action to our institutions and governments, right? Because as I was saying, there's a lack of law enforcement and there's also a lot of fear. Local authorities end up being corrupted or easily extorted by DTOs because they don't have 
enough capacity to respond and protect. They leave them no choice. So they end up being even some sort of complicity, right? They even being part of it because they have no choice. So it's complex. What would you recommend should be done to combat these challenges? Well, I would say that in terms of governmental institutions, we should be looking more at multi-sector approaches. Because this is not only about environmental issues, and it's not only about criminal activity, and it's not only about human rights violations. It's all of them linked. So uh, that leads us to think that we need an integral approach that can only be taken by a multi-sectoral strategy. And we don't have that. In a local level, I would think of NGOs and environmental and human rights defenders. They need more protection. They're, they're being killed just because they're defending land and they're defending people. And basically, they lack of access to justice and they lack of support from the authorities. So we need to strengthen local capacity of organizations and collective groups that are working towards protection of human rights and environmental issues, not only in the Sierra Taromara, but in every forested land in the country. And on another level, I would go recommend an approach towards indigenous population. They are the most vulnerable of the vulnerable right now in the Chihuahua case, in the Sierra Taromara. There's a lot of different factors to look at when talking about indigenous populations. It's a sensitive topic because at all levels, indigenous issues are not well attended as, as they should. I would recommend getting closer to indigenous population and finding better responses and strategies for them to joint their strengths and capacities. First of all, to manage and protect their lands and people among themselves and then link them with the right NGOs and, and right authorities so they could stay and protect their land, their forests. That was Diana Sillier, the director of Jade Environmental Justice and Human Rights in Mexico and is the co-author of People and Forest at Risk, Organized Crime, Trafficking in Persons and Deforestation in Chihuahua, Mexico. Now we're going to turn to illegal logging and criminal structures on a global level. Which countries are most affected and the profits that are made through this exploitation? That's right. Being a clandestine industry, it always is difficult to put precise figures on the money we're looking at. So I turned to Julia Urunaga, who works with the Environmental Investigation Agency, an international NGO who investigates forest and environmental crimes. Her specialism is illegal logging and related crimes, such as the illegal timber trade, illegal land use, corruption, and human rights. The really sad part is that all this is fueled by international demand, right? So we have a very sad combination of sometimes poor local regulation or poor local rule of law, but that is combined with international demand that doesn't care where things are coming from or how things are being harvested or in, one con in what context. So this makes illegal logging one of the most profitable organized crime networks. 
there's studies that show that the retail value, I mean, what you move, what you make in the sector, you have at the global level, right? When you have counterfeiting at the top with over a trillion dollars a year, then you have drug trafficking around 500 billion, and then you have illegal logging, which is between 50 billion and 150 billion. But the thing here is that the profitability of this kind of crimes is a lot higher because once you move the timber out of the illegal harvesting spot, you can make it look like legal and then everything is profit, right? I mean, the other criminal networks imply a lot of corruption, a lot of bribing, a lot of dark payments. Here, that can stop very early in the process because once you have produce the fake papers or you have bribed the initial authorities to look the other side, then your product looks clean. So you can move it around. You don't need to hide it. Do you have cocaine? You need to hide it all the time. You have illegal timber. Once you launder it, you can pretend to be a decent person doing business, right? And that's the big problem here. Do buyers need to take more responsibility? The important country is the international demand cannot be just buying anymore without paying attention to all the crimes that are happening in the country of origin, but also across the whole chain of custody, right? So what we're seeing in parallel is more transparency and traceability at the local level. I mean, at the, at the producer country, right? That's very important. We need committed authorities. We need political will that can stand at all the pressure or the lobby from the industry that wants to keep working, wants to keep doing business as usual, not asking the questions and ignoring what's happening behind. We need strong authorities committed at the producer country to produce more traceability and transparency so that the buyers at the local level, at the national level, and at the international level, so that the buyers can be responsible too. What are governments doing to combat illegal logging? So we're starting to see change, and that is, that is very positive, right? We're starting to see change in both sides. The United States has a law that is called the Lacey Act that makes it illegal to import into the United States many, many different kinds of products, but among them, illegally logged timber or illegally traded timber, according to the laws of the country of origin. The European Union has a similar law called the European Union Timber Regulation. Different countries are having that. Japan is exploring it. Australia has one, has had one for some time now. And the very important thing is that even China, which is the main buyer of timber around the world, is now introducing a legality clause in their forest law. It's a very early stage, but that means that that's the way to go. That's the way to move forward. We cannot just keep buying irresponsibly, destroying, destroying the forest, but also killing the, the forest people. Why do you think that their earnings and profits are still increasing so much when basically there are the legal frameworks in place? We need information. And the information, the transparency and traceability information needs to be produced at the, I mean, at the producer country and needs to be available for everybody else to look at it. For example, the things that have changed in Peru now that there's a lot more information, we have been doing and publishing investigations, investigative reports that document which are the companies that are buying illegally locked timber and which are at the national level. And then who are they selling to in the international markets and bringing names up. But some things are starting to happen, right? Like, for example, a couple of years ago, 
the United States, which is one of the main buyers of Peruvian timber, had to block two companies that were exporting illegally locked timber, right? So they're sending a message to the industry that these things are not allowed anymore, that things are changing. You tracked a company that was bringing low-value timber from Peru through Mexico and into the United States, a very complicated journey for such a large and heavy product, which for something that is of low value seems quite strange. Is this an unusual occurrence? So it looked weird. We started looking at the, at the companies and we found for the shipments that we could document, where we could really access to most of the papers, those had an average of over 96% of legal origin of the timber. So this is not a mistake or two. This is I mean, the mistake is the 1% that's legal here, apparently, right? I mean, it's just ridiculous, the levels of illegality. And everybody knows it. So we, I mean, we were able to produce these papers. Some of that timber was going directly to the United States. Some of that timber was going from Mexico to the United States. So we even found companies that are in the United States that are owned by the same people that own the, the companies in Mexico. So it's like a fun game. Right. I mean, you're, you're just moving the things around and you find the same names, the same people, even if they're different companies, they're owned by the same people. Clearly, the problem here is that Mexico is acting as a, another laundering machine for international illegally locked timber because we documented all this information, all this illegal trade, and we shared the information with the Mexican authorities. And we know that when the vessel arrived with a lot of illegal timber, the Peruvian customs authorities talked to the Mexican customs authorities and they stopped the timber initially. But then there was a strong lobby from the Mexican industry, really enough from the Peruvian consulate in Mexico to release the timber. Because according to Mexico, it didn't need any more papers. So the Mexican authorities that stopped the timber initially asked the importers proof legal origin for this timber because the Peruvian authorities are telling me that they're illegal. And the importers didn't answer that question. They said, I don't have to because the Mexican legislation just says that I need a declaration of export. I don't need anything else. So what does this mean? This means that they're admitting that they don't care if the timber is legal or, or illegal. This is just a paper that is used to clean the timber, I mean, to wash the timber, but also to wash the conscience of everybody involved in the trade. And this is not only terrible, of course, for Peru, because this is timber that is tainted with blood, literally. This is also bad for Mexico, because this is bringing unfair competition to the timber producers in Mexico, right? They're bringing timber that is illegal, that is not paying the real cost, that it's undervalued to compete with legal timber in Mexico. So, I mean, there are all these different impacts that, that are destroying the industry in addition to destroy the forest and, of course, destroy human lives. What about environmental defenders in Peru trying to stop this illicit trade? The situation of environmental defenders in Peru is dramatic, especially for indigenous environmental defenders. And just in the last few weeks, Two indigenous leaders were assassinated in different communities during the mandatory lockdown of the COVID-19 quarantine in Peru. They were assassinated by illegal loggers and land invaders in their communities. So one of them was Arvildo Melendez, 
from the community Unipakuyaku. And yesterday, we received an alert from the indigenous leaders of the area telling us that the land invaders, the illegal actors that assassinated Arbildo in April are back and they're now they're threatening the whole community. So this is a very bad situation. And then the other leader that was assassinated this week, Gonzalo Piov, his wife was also badly injured during the attack. So she's in danger right now. And the father of Gonzalo Pio, the leader Mauro Pio, he was murdered for the same reasons in May 2013. And there's still no investigation about who murdered him. So this is real. We have the Saweto and, and Edwin Chota case where four leaders were assassinated for protecting their land. Sadly, we have way too many cases. We have way too many examples of how illegal logging kills and destroys communities. Because after they kill a leader, it's really hard for the community to, to bounce back and then to feel the strength to keep going because they don't get any support from the state. That was Julia Urunaga from an environmental investigation agency. So, Livia, those are some powerful stories we've just heard from uh, Julia and Diana. From your research, what are your key recommendations to the government of Mexico? So basically, key recommendations for the government of Mexico are threefold. Firstly, looking at human trafficking, it is important to strengthen the labor inspection system, particularly in the forestry and agricultural sectors, and to improve the mechanisms to identify and refer victims employed in illegal logging. And of course, also to ensure that all suppliers of timber and wood-based products to the federal government conduct rigorous due diligence on trafficking in persons in their supply chain. Secondly, on illegal logging, it is important to promote multi-sectoral, meaning environmental, law enforcement, labor and human rights institution strategies and actions to eradicate illegal logging and looking specifically at rural areas and indigenous populations. And last but not least, enact legislations that require companies to disclose their due diligence efforts in ensuring that wood purchases do not fuel illegal logging, environmental degradation, organized crime and or trafficking in persons. Thank you very much, Livia. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Deep Dive Exploring Organized Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Livia's paper, People and Forests at Risk, Organized Crime, Trafficking in Persons and Deforestation in Chihuahua, Mexico, is available on our website, www.globalinitiative.net and in the show notes for this podcast. I'd like to thank Diana and Julia for joining the Deep Dive podcast. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And I'm Livia Wagner. Thank you for listening. During the 21st century, thousands of criminal assassinations have occurred worldwide. They produce a butterfly effect of trauma locally, nationally, regionally and globally. Despite these efforts to silence, criminal assassinations can be a source of hope and community resilience. He had a fire in him. He couldn't stand corruption, and he wouldn't stop after exposing it. She was such a force of nature that when I first met her, I came away a bit shaken, a bit intimidated. He was a very pleasant, modest, and humble person 
who dreamt about a time when all criminals would pay for their deeds. She taught us the fear paralyzed actions of the people. We will never give up, even if we got killed, even if they murder us. They didn't die. They multiplied. Thousands of brave souls have paid with their lives because they refused to tolerate criminal governance. In 2019, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime commissioned approximately 50 profiles of persons assassinated across the world under the Faces of Assassination project. These profiles highlight places where organized crime has permeated political, cultural and economic sectors of society. Check out our website and join the campaign.